Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I am Brandon Laws, and thanks for joining us today. I've got Steven Rogelberg here on today's episode. He's the author of The Surprising Science of Meetings, How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance. For people who have been listening to this podcast forever, knows that I'm kind of a stickler when it comes to meetings. and I can't stand when they're run ineffectively. And that's probably why I've had two authors of books about meetings you wouldn't think there'd be a ton to unpack, but like yet here we are. Like people are still running ineffective meetings. Stephen in his book has a great angle on it. He talks about the research behind why meetings are ineffective, the costs of meetings, whether or not we need to get rid of them or have more of them. And then he lays out the blueprint for how to conduct a really effective meeting. And we get into a lot of technical things that you can take back to your organization. I want you to listen to this podcast. And then definitely go check out the book. It has been recognized since 2019 on several lists. Sherm, Business Insider, and several others are giving this a lot of recognition. We are lucky to get Steven on the podcast. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode and let me know what you think. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Send me a quick note. I do Instagram, direct messages, Twitter, all that stuff. So I look forward to hearing from you. And please, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, go give us that five-star review. They are really, really helpful in continuing to grow the podcast, and it helps us get really good guests. So thank you so much. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Stephen, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Your book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance, such a fascinating book. I think meetings are an issue that a lot of organizations are having. They're not effective. People don't know how to run them. When you started doing research for this book, because with the surprising science, I mean, you obviously did some research behind this. So when you really started diving into the research behind meetings, and you started asking people what they think, what's a typical response you heard? They hate them. <laughs> <laughs> they hate them. Yeah, I've been doing research on this topic for 20 years. And you know, as an organizational psychologist, I'm dedicated to understanding and working to improve organizations. And clearly, meetings is a perfect target, right? You have people spending tons and tons of time in meeting, and there's so much frustration. We can definitely move the dial on meetings leveraging science. It was interesting because early on in the book, you talked about the cost of meetings, and I hadn't really put much thought into it. Like, you attend a meeting, you willingly accept, you show up and you're like, what did we just do for an hour? And you'd laid it out perfectly in chapter one. The quote says, say there's a direct level staff meeting with seven people that last an hour with an average yearly salary of $120,000 a year per attendee, or that's about $60 an hour. That meeting alone would cost $420. If this staff meeting occurs every week for a year, the total annual cost is about 21000 for just that one meeting. End quote. It's funny because on the surface, and I read that, and I've talked to other people about that particular quote, and a lot of us would probably say, we just need to get rid of meetings altogether, like immediately. That's just a waste of money. But my guess, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but my assumption is that you're probably more on the side of where meetings at that level of cost just need to be effective rather than just get rid of them altogether. Am I right in assuming that? You are. A world without meetings is much more problematic. Meetings are a mechanism for communication, coordination, cooperation, consensus decision-making. 
in many regards, organizational democracy takes place in meetings. I see meetings as an evolution of organizations um, and how they interact and connect with their human resource. So the goal is not to eliminate meetings. The goal is just to eliminate bad meetings and to increase the ratio of good meeting time to bad meeting time. When you did your research, was there any misalignment with the perception of meetings by those who run meetings and those who attend them? I'm curious what each side would say. Yes, for sure. We've done research on satisfaction with meetings. And almost invariably, someone leaves the room feeling quite positive about the meeting experience. And mm -hmm. do you want to guess who that is? The meeting leader? Yeah, the meeting leader. And <laughs> this really shouldn't surprise us, right? The meeting leader is in control of the experience. The meeting leader is doing lots and lots of the talking, maybe even all the talking. So they're loving it, right? They're loving this experience. This is so much fun to just be talking and talking and talking. But everyone else's experience can be quite different, right? We relinquish control to that leader. And that leader might do nothing to engage us or bring us in. That leader may have asked us to attend a meeting that is irrelevant to us. So basically, there's definitely this duality between the experiences. And we think about the causes of this. First of all, we know it's human nature to basically have these inflated self-perceptions. We all think we're better than average. And meeting leaders then think they're better than average at running meetings. But there's another factor at play. The research suggests that only around 20% of all leaders receive any training on how to lead a meeting. Now, think about that for a wow, minute. Wow, that's right? incredible. So there are 55 million meetings a day in the U.S. alone, approximately, and only 20% of leaders receive training. This is kind of bonkers, right? This is a legitimate blind spot. People don't know really how to do these things. Then, obviously, their self-perception might not be aligned with reality. That is unbelievable. You had even cited several studies in the book that too many meetings, it's just the biggest time waster. And that's the perception of a lot of people. And it's the reality. We can't scrap meetings altogether. But what's your idea about making sure that meetings are effective? First, <laughs> have everyone buy the book. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's the whole hope of the book as you read it, it's so different than your typical meeting book. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't present any kind of magic formula because the research doesn't support that. What it presents is what the science says on how to make meetings better. And there really is a legitimate science that can help us through this. The key is for leaders to be intentional, right? For leaders to make choices when they're designing and running meetings. For leaders not just to kind of rehash and recycle bad practices. I know we'll get into it probably throughout our conversation. Yep. You know, I guess what's really important for listeners to recognize is that there really is a meaningful set of approaches and tools from you know, who do you invite to a meeting, to the size of the mm -hmm. meeting, to the length of the meeting, that all can be useful in moving the dial. And not one of them in and of themselves is enough, but together they can be incredibly helpful. Yeah, I love that. There's a quote that I pulled that I think illustrates the point that it really starts with the meeting leader. The quote says, a poorly conducted and unnecessary meeting is indeed a form of time theft, a theft that can be prevented, end quote. It really, it does start with the training of that leader and intentionality, right? Who are we inviting? Am I leading the meeting correctly to where we're having a productive dialogue, right? Exactly. When you think about 
and examine who are the best meeting leaders, they have something in common. And what they have in common is that they inherently have a steward of others' time mindset. Now, let's think about that, right? A steward of others' time. When you recognize your role as a steward of others' time, then you are intentional and you are deliberate and you want to honor people's time and not have them waste time. So when you have Mm -hmm. that mindset, you make choices, you think carefully to help illustrate this. Interestingly, we actually have this mindset all the time when we meet with executives or customers, right? We never meet with a high-level executive or a customer such that we haven't thought about it, we haven't planned, we haven't envisioned the meeting, right? Because we don't want that person to leave the meeting going, dang, you just wasted my time. That whole set of intentionality, we just don't apply to our regular daily meetings. We leave it at the door. And we have these abilities in us, we just have to keep transferring it to other contexts and recognize that we want to be a steward of others' time even if that person is not someone high level, because a good steward cares about everyone's time. Yeah. And I think that behavior transfers too. So even if it's a lower level person, they're eventually going to run a meeting at some point. And don't you want to like basically coach and kind of really lead by example when you're running meetings, right? Oh, absolutely. I think leaders don't recognize that meetings are their opportunity. Meetings are their opportunity to differentiate themselves from others. Meetings are the display stages of leadership. We know there's so much dysfunction in meeting leadership. So if you do it right, right, you do it with intentionality and thoughtfulness and you act like a steward, that's going to elevate you and your team. And it's going to result in a lower likelihood of derailment, right? Because as you move up an organization, you're expected to work with and through more and more people. And where does that happen? A meeting. Let's dive into some technical meeting stuff. And I won't give away your entire book because I do want people to go get it. Literally got the blueprint for how to run an effective meeting. One of these ideas that you'd had, which I loved, and I actually shared on my LinkedIn yesterday, you had this idea about like, okay, we fill up whatever time we allocate, right? So we have an hour long meeting, we'll fill up an hour. We have a 30 minute meeting, we'll fill up to 30 minutes no matter what. You had this idea of, okay, you have an hour long meeting, end it at 50 minutes. 30-minute meeting, in it at 25 minutes. What are the benefits of doing something like that? So first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for reading my book so carefully. As an author, that just makes my day. So really, really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. The foundation of the conversation around time uh, really stems from Parkinson's Law. And Parkinson's Law has been vetted very well in the research. And it's this idea that work expands to fill whatever time is allotted to it. So if you schedule a meeting for an hour, magically it's going to take an hour. And most meetings are scheduled for an hour. And why do you think that is? Why are most meetings scheduled for an hour? Am I putting you on the spot? <laughs> because yeah, oh, no, because yeah, Outlook and other calendar exactly systems, right. they give so you that hour. magical about an hour meeting. It's just kind of a default setting. It's the increment that most calendars are created in. And that's just not a good enough reason. We can use Parkinson's law, though, to our advantage. If we schedule a meeting for 50 minutes, it's going to take 50 minutes. If we schedule for 48 minutes, it's going to take 48 minutes. What I want leaders to do is to take control, to look at what they want to accomplish in the meeting, and then decide how much time it's going to take. We do this all the time when we engage in planning activities. We just want to be thoughtful. How much time should it take? And then once you define that time, what I'd like to challenge meeting leaders to do is, to dial it back 5 to 10% even more. Because the research shows that when you add a little bit of mm-hmm. pressure 
groups tend to be more focused and perform optimally. So there's lots of ways that we can kind of leverage the allocation of meeting time to assure more success in meetings. And the added benefit is that we are able to give people the greatest gift in the world, the gift of extra time. It was interesting. When I put that on LinkedIn, I was like, hey, the benefits of doing so is people are going to thank you because they're going to have at least time to you know, transition into their next meeting. Because as we talked about with Outlook or you know, Google Calendar or whatever it may be, it's usually in hour long blocks. And so inevitably, you're going to have you know, something from 12 to 1 and 1 to 2. Well, how do you have transition time between the end of the meeting and the start of the next meeting? And somebody made a comment on my post about this is like what schools have been doing forever. The bell will ring 10 minutes before the hour, and then it gives you time to get to the next class and grab something to eat, go to the bathroom. I think it is the best gift you can give somebody. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny. I mean, schools are a great, actually kind of a nice setting to kind of think about because schools do a lot of things that actually represent good meeting practices, right? So they build in the intervals. That's natural. Like, how could you not have an interval between meetings? You just need it. It's essential. And yet in organizations, we don't often don't do it. Teachers, you know, they think about a lesson, a class period, right? They are trying to be good stewards. And so they think about it and what are potential problems and what plans can they make to promote a meaningful experience? So there really are some interesting connections, I think, that we can draw from schools into making organizational meetings better. Yep. You had a lot of really good information on how to structure an agenda. You basically build a mock agenda. And I encourage people when they look at the book, I mean, copy. <laughs> it's a great structure. When you look at how a meeting leader should structure an agenda, though, what needs to be on it? What kind of information and how would you block out the topics that you're going to dive into during a meeting? Agendas can definitely look a host of different ways. And however, you know, good agendas have a few things in common. So first of all, they're built with items that actually matter, right? So everything on there is actually relevant and meaningful to the people you're inviting. That sounds so intuitive, but it's typically just not <laughs> done. Yeah. So we just really want to be thoughtful about what we're choosing. Does it require discussion? Who needs to be there for it? I love the idea of agendas being thought of as stories. And so what story do you want this meeting to tell? What order should the story unfold? And we know from the research that early items in the agenda receive the most amount of attention. Well, given this findings, it suggests to us that we want to start our meeting, maybe after a few minute buffer, with the most meaty and important topic, right? We don't want to wait to the end to talk about that. We want to put it on the table right away, capture people's interest, their imagination, so that they're convinced from the get-go, wow, I am so glad I'm there. So ordering of the story, agendas that you know clearly indicate what type of preparation is needed. I even like agendas calling out people by name, kind of indicating, hey, this Ooh, is going to be yeah. a directly responsible individual. This is a person who might facilitate this agenda item. So leaders can share the agenda experience with others. And then an agenda innovation I've been talking about in a lot of contexts is this idea of thinking a little differently about agendas. So instead of thinking of agendas as a set of topics to be addressed, consider creating your agenda as a set of questions to be answered. And that very act of thinking of it as questions, it leads you to create kind of a higher level processing. Like, okay, well, what are we really trying to solve in this meeting? By thinking of it as questions, you have a better sense of 
who's needed at the meeting because they're relevant to the question. You have a better sense of when to end the meeting because the questions have been answered. You know whether it's been a good meeting because the questions have been answered in a compelling way. And if you just can't think of any questions, then you likely don't need a meeting. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is like, should you cancel a meeting if you don't even have a compelling agenda? And it sounds like the answer is yes. <laughs> but how far in advance do you figure that out? Like, when do you send the agenda? And as a meeting leader, when do you determine like, eh, we actually don't need a meeting. It's not compelling whatsoever. In terms of that decision point of if you need a meeting or not, hopefully you've kind of done that before you even schedule the meeting. And where you just thought carefully, okay, does this really require kind of interaction and engagement? And if the answer is no, then recognize that there's other things you can do that are actually very efficient, right? You can write it down. Okay, that's fine. But there's other alternatives. We can record ourselves talking, right? We can do a quick video cast. And people love these options because then they can listen to it at their convenience. They don't have to be interrupted from their workflow. And not only can they listen to it at their convenience or perhaps on a commute, but they can also listen to it at a faster speed because we know that humans can listen faster than most people speak. Yeah. So A, recognizing that they have other tools available to them to kind of engage in this way. But even if you scheduled the meeting, if 24 hours before you realize, you know what, I just don't have enough there, that's fine. You can still cancel it. I do like the idea of getting the agenda out at least two to five days in advance, mostly because it gives people time to prepare, but it also lets them kind of have a conversation with you to maybe opt out if they just don't think the meeting is all that relevant to them. Yeah. Kind of a two-sided question here. One, how many people should be in a meeting? And how do we get to this place where, you know, we talk about inclusivity, and I think that's why too many people end up attending meetings is we want to include people naturally, but honestly have no reason being there in a lot of cases. So how do you answer that question in a way that like, what's the perfect size, I guess, is the, really the ultimate question? There's not going to be a perfect size. So much of it will depend on the facilitator's skills. You could certainly argue, though, for real genuine discussion, it has to be eight or less. If someone's really good as a facilitator, maybe it could get up to 12. But if you want actual engagement and interaction, there's just limits of what's going to happen when you have so many people asking for airtime. So we have to keep that in mind. If it's just more about information dissemination, then obviously those can be much bigger because you're not looking for you know, true engagement. What was the second part? Yes, the inviting people. So the inclusivity, yeah, you're just inviting everybody. That's such a fun and important question. Because, you know, one of the things that we know is that when people are not invited to a meeting, it actually kind of creates a little anxiety. They're worried that maybe they're being marginalized, kind of outgroup. We have to recognize that that exists. I like to think of it as a hypothetical conversation. So let's say that you've thought about a meeting and you've identified who are the core people. That's typically not hard. We know who truly has to be there. Where we get ourselves in trouble are more of these secondary individuals who are the kind of the nice to haves, but not necessary. So for those individuals, you know, this is what the conversation could sound like. It could sound like, you know, Gordon, we're having a meeting. Here's some of the topics that we're going to talk about. I don't think these things are really tremendously relevant to you, but I wanted to give you an opportunity. If you have any input about any of them, you'll let me know. I'll be happy to represent it. I'll also be totally happy to share with you the meeting minutes at the end and know that at any future point you want to come to a meeting, you're more than welcome. If you lay out a conversation like that, guess what the person's going to say? I'm good. Sounds great. Thanks. Yep. But they also have been validated. So if you kind of do those steps, 
then it's a great way of shrinking the meeting size, which only helps with the functionality of the meeting. And you're kind of giving that gift of time to more and more people. Yeah. Engagement's like one of the hardest things, I think, in meetings because not everybody gets airtime. But you had some really good ideas in the book about how to get people engaged when not everybody can talk all at once and talk over each other. You have this idea of like incorporating silence, brain writing. Do you want to talk about any of those or other ideas that you think would create really good engagement? Sure. There are lots of different tools that a leader can use. And I spend quite a bit of time in the book sharing different approaches that I think can be helpful for people. I have a whole chapter around this idea of silence being this incredible way of actually energizing meetings. And I actually just had an HBR piece I put out about it as well. And so silent brainstorming is really pretty fascinating. So the research shows that if you have, let's say, two groups, one is brainstorming verbally and the other one's brainstorming silent. And what a silent brainstorming group is doing is just writing ideas on paper or into an app. Well, silent brainstorming groups generate nearly twice as many ideas and those ideas tend to be more creative and more disruptive. Mm. And the reason being is, A, everyone can talk at once, right? Because they're writing in silence. And B, you don't know what the other people are saying, right? So you're bringing your true self to it. You're divorcing the person from the idea. So it's giving voice to everyone from the high power to the low power to all these different status characteristics, right? It's an equalizer. You're letting the merits of the content emerge. And then, so you have a greater wealth of ideas. And then when the group talks about them, well, again, it's not attached mm -hmm. to people. So it's a more of a genuine discussion. And there certainly will be conflict, but that conflict is around ideas and not people. So that just gives you a feel for one option. But, you know, really, I try to lay out in my book probably, gosh, I mean, there's probably 20 or 30 different options. And yeah. what I want a meeting leader to do is to think about who they are as a person, as a leader, and just pick some good choices, you know, pick some choices that feel right for them and give it a go. And then learn, reflect, grow, right? Learn, reflect, grow. See how something works for you. If it works well, great, keep going. But if it's not, then okay, try something else. And that's perfectly fine. Again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. That's what a good steward does. How do you like to start meetings? Because I feel like that would be the hardest thing to do is to make sure it starts off on the right foot. Do icebreakers, activities, start it with a, <laughs> posing a question. What is it? Just dive right in yeah, or what? Know, <laughs> listen, icebreakers sound fun in spirit, but you know, people, they just want to get stuff done. <laughs> I know. I'm a big believer that a meeting leader needs to start their meetings very well. And, you know, kind of think of it as they are starting the meeting similar to how a host would start an event. So what does a host do when they start an event, right? They welcome people. They thank them for coming. They express gratitude, right? They smile. They have a good attitude. They make introductions when people don't know each other. Well, that's the greatest way of starting a meeting. That way you bring the energy, you bring the positive mood. And, you know, what we find in our research is that leader mood is actually very contagious. So start like that, start with a positive energy, you know, have a few minutes of kind of the notes. And then as I mentioned earlier, just go hard at getting stuff done. Let's circle all the way back to the science of meetings. With any good science, you've got feedback loop, you collect data. What's a really good way to collect data about whether we're really good at running meetings, whether people were engaged and whether they felt like it was worth their time. Is there like a really good way to get that feedback from people as they either exit the meeting or some other way? Sure. So given that we know 
that humans tend to have this blind spot around their meeting leadership ability, then it behooves us to challenge that blind spot. So basically, the best meeting leaders periodically evaluate their meetings. Again, that's what a steward would do, right? They evaluate the meetings. And I am all for keeping it simple. I don't like complex solutions to simple problems. So I'm a big believer that you periodically survey people and just say, hey, what's going well? What can we do differently? Any ideas for you know, making this better? And collect that information and look for themes and then share it with your group and try it. But the very act of asking for feedback, it's going to give you plenty of stuff to work for. And you know, when you're not actively collecting feedback, at least scan for cues. Right, so if you look at your meeting and everyone's multitasking and there's side conversations and there's one person dominating or you're the one dominating, those are all indicators that you're not running a good meeting. Yeah. Steven Rogelberg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Your book is The Surprising Science of Meetings. You're getting a lot of press and this book has just taken off. Can you talk about where people can find the book, learn more about you and what kind of you know, press are you getting right now? Like this book is phenomenal. Oh, thank you. Well, the book came out, I think, January 2nd, and then January 3rd, Washington Post named it the number one leadership book to watch for in 2019. And then a week later, Business Insider named it top 14 books. And I'm just amazed. This is incredible that this is happening. You know, a book about meetings is capturing people's imaginations. And it's continuing this summer, Sherm and strategy and business all put it in their top 10. So it's getting so much love. And it really is incredibly meaningful to me because my goal of writing this book was not to figure out what to write in my next book. My goal in writing this book was to take 20 years of research and bring it forward because I thought it could really help. And clearly there's an appetite for it. And I'm very grateful that that's the case. I would love for people to come to my website. It's stevenrogelberg.com. Again, stevenrogelberg.com. And I have resources on there. There are certainly links to buy the book. You know, Amazon obviously has it. There's lots of places where you can get it, but I have a number of links on the website where to get it, as well as there's videos, all kinds of, I think, nice content that could be helpful for people. So definitely check out stevenrogelberg.com. And I really appreciate you having me on, you know, this ability to kind of share these key findings and to hopefully energize your audience is really a great one. Thanks, Stephen. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you.